This is the Home Bodies Yoga Podcast, and I'm Rebecca Hirsch, and this is our 21st episode. In this podcast, I ask people what they do when they unroll their yoga mat and tell you a little bit about what's going on on mine. If you have a question about your yoga practice or a suggestion for a guest, please email me at rebecca at homebodiesyoga.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at homebodiesyogapodcast. To find out more about each show, please go to our website, homebodiesyoga.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And I said this last week, but if you are listening in a place like Spotify where you can't rate and review, I would love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review there. It really helps people find the show. I know it's an extra step, so it's a pain, but I would really appreciate it. Oh, so let's try this again. I recorded a bunch on uh, like on Monday. It's Wednesday now. This will come out on Friday. But I recorded a bunch on Monday and I hadn't slept well the night before, like at all. Like I was kind of up all night. So I was really sleepy when I was recording or like dazed. And <laughs> you know, like how sometimes when you're uh, really uh, sleepy, it's kind of the same as being like, a little stony, like a little too high. Um, it was that. So like, I really thought everything I was saying was super profound. And then I re-listened to it and I was like, wow, not at all profound. You sound like a kook. So, uh, here we go (laughs) round probably 20 or something because I recorded a bunch on Monday and it's all, it's all real garbage. So I'm not going to subject you to it. Uh, anyway, my practice has been Well, one really cool thing, it's small, but I wanted to talk to you about it, is I have been taking classes with Melanie Green. She was on episode 20. If you haven't listened to episode 20, I really, really recommend it. Um, She's, I don't know, she just really, especially if you're interested in like learning how to live uh, your yoga practice beyond the mat. um, Yeah, anyway, I really recommend it. But uh, I've been taking her classes online and she is really good at verbal assists. Like she is really good at watching her students and giving you assists. So she's been like giving me little um, assists during class. And she uh, told me this thing to do an up dog, which I guess I was like keeping my ankles lifted or not my ankles, but the tops of my feet lifted. And she was like, press the tops of your feet down instead of keeping them lifted. Cause like, you know, like the whole top of my foot, cause I have kind of a big arch. So I was just pressing kind of like just this bottom half of the top of my foot down and pressing the whole top of my foot down really has changed my up dog. Like it really spread my low back out in a way that I haven't felt before and and somehow also made my upper back get more of a stretch, which I guess makes sense. I think it like pushes the back bend into your upper back. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's really nice. It's just really nice too to have like a new, have a teacher tell me something to focus on because I haven't had that, you know, because I've been kind of doing my own weird home practice by myself and in my room because of, you know, all of the things that go along with a global pandemic. Um, yeah, so I don't know. It was just cool to like have a new thing to think about in my practice and have someone see me. Um, but I've been thinking like I get my second shot on Friday, this Friday, so the day this comes out. And so like theoretically in like two weeks, I could go to a in public class, which I don't know. It, like, of course, it's like what we've been excited about, like, oh, to be in community, oh, to have a teacher who can like really assist and teach me. Uh, but it, I don't know, it feels like it's kind of scary too. like, I guess I've just gotten so used to home practice and like occasional zoom classes that I, it's like kind of hard to imagine going to a class. And then the class would probably be like an hour or more long, which I haven't been practicing that long. And then, you know, getting home from the class, maybe taking a shower. It's like this big time commitment. And not only that, but like, I don't really have a teacher in Chicago that I, I mean, I, I, there's a teacher I love, Sarah Stroder, but she's um, teaching online exclusively for the time being, who I don't think she's going to, I'm not sure she's going to go back to teaching in person. Um, So yeah, I'd have to go to like someone's class that I don't know. And like, what if they're not my cup of tea? Like, it's not like an online class where I can just, you know, like close my computer. (laughs) Like I have to like, I'd I'd stay 
it's so crazy. I don't know. It feels like uh, almost transgressive. I don't know. I'm sure people who are teaching, who've been teaching this whole time online feel, I don't know, you must feel crazy to be like now going back to in-person when you probably just got used to teaching online. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, I feel like there's just so much to get reintroduced to. Uh, I was thinking about like, of course, now that it's feeling like in the U.S. anyway, there is kind of an end in sight. Like, you know, people are getting vaccinated. I'm almost fully vaccinated. Uh, it's nice to kind of look back and see the silver linings um, for for my yoga practice specifically, um, where I have never, like, something that I think is kind of a cliche for yogis or like kind of crunchy hippies is that they have a good sense of intuition. Like, you know, I have a lot of like yogi friends who are like, I just had a feeling I should walk in the store and then I saw you there. And I really never felt that. And I think, I don't think it's because I have less intuition than other people, especially other people who really practice yoga and meditation. Cause I think those build intuition, but I think it's because I'm, I have anxiety and I have, um, I'm like self-conscious and I have anxiety. And then the other thing is I have this like need to make everyone around me feel comfortable that I'm, I'm really working on, but it's like this, it's like an obsessive need to keep things peaceful around me, which I think those things kind of like block intuition or they kind of like foggy your intuitive sense. Um, so I've been thinking about how like now in my yoga practice, I really have learned how to move more intuitively um, because it's just me, which, you know, of course it has its cons. Like I haven't gotten a teacher to tell me things like try pressing your feet down to, you know, really change my practice and kind of wake me up a little bit. But it's also been really nice to learn to like move how I, how my body wants to move. Um, yeah. And I really feel like the lack of an audience, like the lack of being in a room with other people and even the lack of having a teacher, because for me, a teacher, the more the problem is the more I like them, the more I want them to like me. And I have this like obsessive need to people please. So then, you know, instead of sometimes instead of like moving intuitively, I want to move in the way that the teacher wants me to move, which, you know, I've had really great teachers who are good at kind of shutting that down. But it's there. So it's like an extra element there that I'm kind of wrestling with. So it's been really nice to not have that audience I was just thinking in other aspects of my life it's similar like with parenting so this whole year I've really had time or you know more than a year I've had time to learn like what kind of parent works for me and Hudson like how our relationship how it works Hudson's my two-year-old by the way um without an audience right there haven't been like you know he hasn't been in classes with other parents we haven't really been at the playground with other parents so I've just gotten kind of gotten the opportunity to figure things out for myself without I don't know because you know that outside audience does always affect I I think I'll speak for myself it especially affects me and I've gotten to kind of parent without an audience um which is it's been interesting because Hudson signed up I signed him up for soccer. So we've been to soccer a couple times. He is a thumper. They are all named after things bunnies do. So like next year he'll be a cottontail. It's so cute. But it's just interesting because, you know, we're on the field with the kids because they're so little. And it's it's like uh, interesting to see that other parents have found different parenting philosophies that work for them. Um, and it's it's funny how it immediately makes me question my intuition. Like, oh, oh, should I have done this? Like, am I doing this wrong? Is my relationship wrong? Instead of just like appreciating that like every relationship is different and every parent parents differently. And like, you know, instead, the minute I see something done differently than I do it, I'm like, oh no, I've messed up. Uh, Which is so interesting. Um, So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how things kind of change and, and, and evolve and how, you know, what kind of a mind it's really a mind fuck, excuse my language. Uh, this like coming back into society kind of thing is going to go. Um, yeah, I've been actually thinking a lot about intuition though, because my, I haven't updated you guys, but that bad ear infection where I was in the hospital, it's looking like I probably have an autoimmune disease. The doctors aren't really sure what it is. So like going to a bunch of different doctors and they're kind of figuring it out. 
Um, but it's funny, you know, an autoimmune disease is interesting because you, it can not affect you at all. So like, I feel totally fine right now, but like it, I could just like get another, you know, some other big symptom that could really affect me. It could affect me a little, it could be sort of unpleasant or it could be like this, you know, big deal. Um, but I, I don't know. And they're not even really sure which autoimmune disease it might be. There's like some ideas, but, um, so it's interesting because I was talking to my good friend uh, who I've known forever and she was saying like, Oh, what a, you know, what a shame. Like you worked, you know, you've been doing yoga for so long and you've like really, you know, had this interest in wellness for so long and now this happens. And I was kind of like, Oh no, like I really feel like my, somehow I was like intuitive, you know, to be interested. I intuited that I needed this, like, you know, something in my like confused, wild 20 year old brain kind of knew that this was something I needed. Like I, that, that yoga was somehow good for me, like asana, I mean, and that, you know, like an interest in wellness was something that I needed somehow. Um, and it actually made me feel, I don't know, I felt, it feels really good to feel like, oh, maybe I did, I do sometimes know what's good for me. <laughs> it sounds so simple, but I don't know. It felt like a, like a victory or like a win in this kind of like murky situation where I'm not sure, you know, what's going on with my health. Cause you know, maybe if, if I keep listening, it'll be good as, as whatever's going on with me goes on, uh, I guess. I've been working on this intro for a few days and I just interviewed Kamiko Shibata and it's funny I was talking about intuition because I don't usually act fast but the minute I got done interviewing her I signed up for an Ayurvedic consultation with her and I don't know if that's um, intuition or uh, my how impressed I was with her, talking to her or maybe it's probably a mixture of both I guess but I'll let you guys know how that goes. Um, yeah, she, well, first of all, she's like really, uh, and she's an amazing yoga teacher, uh, which is originally why I wanted her on the show. But then, uh, she's also an Ayurvedic consultation or an Ayurvedic practitioner and her, um, I mean, she has so much knowledge. Like she, uh, almost has her master's in Ayurveda from the Mount Madan Institute. She's studied in India, um, she has been co- doing consultations for like 10 or 15 years. She's studied in other places in California. Um, but the thing that makes her really special is I feel like she has just such a generous spirit. Like she was really willing on this podcast to just explain so many different parts of Ayurveda and her perspective on them and sort of her philosophy. Um, and yeah, her classes are just that way too. Her yoga classes, she's just like so generous. Like when um, I used to take her classes in California, uh, afterwards she would always say like, oh, and we all go get hot chocolate after. Like, which sounds small, but like I've never had a yoga teacher do that before. I, as a yoga teacher, have never done that. Um, Just like just wanting to build community and being generous with her time. Um, yeah, and I just really like her approach to Ayurveda because I think sometimes in, in any wellness philosophy, including Ayurveda, we can get kind of trapped in the method instead of being concerned with the results. Um, so like getting trapped in following the rules of Ayurveda rather than aiming toward wellness. And Kamiko definitely aims toward wellness. So uh, yeah, I'm really excited. I <laughs> I love this interview. I think you will too. And I'll let you know how my consultation goes. Uh, so here is Kamiko. Welcome, Kamiko. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I know you because I have taken your classes a bunch of times when we were both living in the Bay Area. And I always found them really transformative. You somehow always knew exactly what I needed in that moment, on that day, in that week, in that month, in that year. Um, So that's part of the reason I asked you on the show. But also you are an Ayurvedic practitioner, you're an aerialist, and a massage therapist. (laughs) But I was hoping you could get started talking about your background in Ayurveda.
Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so Hi. much for having me here. I'm Komako Shibata. Um, and I was drawn to Ayurveda when I first got into yoga, which I got into at a young age. And I ended up in India. I did this very sort of ridiculous thing of going to India, 19 years old, by myself, showed up to India in my yoga pants in Delhi after a 20-hour flight. Like, what have I done? So I... <laughs> sort of moment um, and ended up in various adventures and misadventures and ended up in Kashmir, which is, you know, actually where Tantra came from and all of these sort of beautiful synchronistic moments. But one of them was being in an ashram in Rishikesh studying yoga. And um, I ended up with this book from Dr. Frawley and Dr. Frawley is one. Him and Dr. Vasant Lad are pretty much the two most foremost um, Ayurvedic doctors, scholars in the United States. Dr. Lott is from India. Um, Dr. Frawley is a Westerner. And he was actually coming to this ashram to speak. And I got a hold of one of his books. And I just remember looking at one of his books. And there was a chart of the datus, which are the tissues in the body, according to Ayurveda, which include like lamps, blood, muscles, all of that kind of stuff. And it was also related to um, plants and the trees and how there's sap in the trees and the roots. And so it had this really sort of ecological and human related chart. And I just remember looking at it and really being drawn to it. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, I feel like this is the only thing in my whole life I've learned from a book this must be my thing. Because <laughs> like, I don't know about your, like, you know, reading books, memorizing memory, but I don't really have that sort of memory. I'm a much more kinesthetic and, like, experiential learner. And so to, like, memorize and really feel like I could absorb something from a book was a big surprise. And so I was just like, this is my thing. And then I went and heard him speak in the ashram. And just from there, various things unfolded to study Ayurveda more um, when I went back to the United States. I studied at the Diana Center in Sebastopol with Diana Batdorf, who my first Ayurvedic teacher. Um, and then I studied some with Dr. Laud at the Ayurvedic Institute and had a practice in the Bay Area for many years. And then I more recently had a crazy idea to go back to school. And so I actually did a master's degree in Ayurveda at Mount Madonna Institute, which I am 96% done with. Um, COVID put a little wrinkle in our in-person um, apprenticeship. So I actually have to go back to California in the next month and just finish up those, those small little pieces to have uh, an official MA in Ayurveda. So that's been kind of my, my journey academically. Um, but, you know, Ayurveda means, the, the common definition is science of life. But there's also a more poetic definition because Sanskrit has this beautiful um, metaphoric and literal definitions of everything, right? And so in the more poetic definition of Ayurveda, it's knowledge of longevity, right? And so it's how do we live? How do we live in sort of a long, a long-term way? And how do we live also as a living science? So how do we live in a really practical way, right? And you already mentioned something about like, oh, I like how you said that you can meditate in bed if you have kids so you're not, like, disturbing them or whatever. And that's not classic Ayurveda by any means, no, but my personal philosophy with it is really I try to meet people where they are. You know, I'm not really interested in, like, the perfect classical way of doing things. I think those are important. I study the roots. I have almost every classical textbook, you know, two feet from my bed. Hopefully I'm absorbing all of the Chiraka while I'm sleeping. But and, and I will use them as references. But, you know, those books were written in a very specific time in a very specific place in India by Brahmin, by upper class male people. And for any of us who are not upper class male people thousands of years ago, we can take that knowledge of life and we expand on it to make it a living science. And so I really try to yeah, meet people where, where they are and, and live Ayurveda by example. I mean, all of my friends, anyone who spent any time with me knows they're going to eat kitchari, they're going to have salt scrubs. 
They're obsessed with my pesto. I have all my friends in Mexico like obsessed with my pesto. I can't like, <laughs> I can't make a batch. I'm like, can you not finish the pesto today? Like when my friends are staying with me, I'm like, I want to eat pesto tomorrow, right? <laughs> so um, like cilantro and all of that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, to me, I find that Ayurveda and yoga really work together in this, in this holistic way that allows us to like, live in the best way possible while knowing that we're messy, imperfect, challenging human beings. I love that. I have a lot of times been committed to, you know, one wellness perspective or another, and it, the more strict they are, sometimes the more kind of, I don't know, I, sort of intriguing they are, but then the quicker I kind of fall off, you know, like if, you know, a very intense kind of wellness philosophy can be great for two days, but then you see your friends or you see your family and you don't have time to do the three hour process. And then I kind of will give up on the whole thing. So that's why I really mm. like your perspective uh, for, for you personally, what are like some of the Ayurvedic practices that like just you stick with, like no matter how busy you are, these are the things you do. Mm-hmm. And I love your answer. I just have to say because it's very vata. <laughs> our vata, our air and ether people, they try something for a day and then, <laughs> and then they, can't, they can't quite stick with it, right? So that's very sort of vata um, um, response, response there. Um, but for me, I mean, the overall sort of arching idea of Ayurveda, which I will say is I'm actually not that good at, but I try to keep the framework of thinking about the day and creating as much regularity and routine. So kind of what you're speaking to and what I found in my practice um, of, of being a yoga teacher and massage, Ayurveda, all of these sort of practices is that as a society, I find that we tend to be very hard on ourselves, but yet we lack discipline. And I think that's one of the main gifts of the yoga practice. Ayurveda as well, but specifically a consistent yoga, asana, pranayama, meditation practice is it gives us that consistency, right? And so people will try something for a couple of days and then they won't keep doing it, but then they'll be hard on themselves and upset about not doing that, right? That's not everyone. There's some people like the very ardent yogis who are probably very consistent and, and hard on themselves. You know, that's like our super pizza type, type A people. Um, and so I try to find a space where it's like I can be and I can offer things that are really consistent, but also not be hard on myself when I fall off. Because the answer to everything in Ayurveda is it depends. Right. It's not a strictly vegetarian system. I'm not a strict vegetarian. Right. It's not a strictly anti-alcohol system or anti this or that. It's just for whom and for when. And then there's a time and place for everything. So I try to keep that sort of overarching flexibility within within life as an as actually a practice of self-care and self-love to not beat myself up when it's not everything to a T and within that as much of a routine as is possible right and so I eating at a similar time every day going to sleep getting up at a similar time each day that's one of the main ways to create balance in Ayurveda and it's not a strong suit of mine I will say but it's really especially the waking up within about 30 minutes of the same time each day it's a practice that I really try to um, do. And what else? I can't always do sunrise depending on where I am, but on a perfect day, I honor both sunrise and sunset. And I almost always see sunset. So marking the, the beginning and the end of the day, right. As the light changes, which is that very sort of rajasic moment. If we have our, you know, sattvic day, and then we go into our tamasic night, looking at the gunas in, in yoga and Ayurveda, it's that rajasic, it's that movement of the day that I try to honor. Um, in terms of like practice self-care, I always do pranayama. Well, always, not always, <laughs> say five days a week. I do, pra I do pranayama and I do a lot of mantra. I do a lot of chanting, um, Vedic chanting. And that's something that I was able to study at the Krishnamacharya um, Yoga Mandaram in India. Um, and then I'm a pretty consistent with Abhyanga, which is warm oil massage, soft oil massage. Um, which is really grounding for the nervous system, really hydrating for the skin because touch is so 
both negative and positive touch are so significant on the nervous system and are connected into that, that limbic system, right? And so just that, that sensation of touch and care. So I try to do Abhyanga at least massaging my feet with oil at night, which really helps improve sleep. So I'd say that kind of the sleep wind down things, taking herbs at night and massaging the feet, and then that morning routine of a little meditation, breathing practices, awakening the senses. I'm also a big fan of, um, which is classic Ayurveda, but used in almost all native traditions all around the world, is burning some sort of incense or sage, some sort of sacred scent. And I find that that's one of the quickest ways to shift your energy. Mm-hmm. If you're like in a funk and it's like sitting doesn't really make sense, eating doesn't, like you can't <laughs> quite figure it out, like burn some sage, like clear that energy or kopal or palasandor, or whatever, whatever scent you have available or put essential oils in a diffuser. A very quick little shift trick. Mm. Okay, there's a few things. I have a few responses. <laughs> the first is, you're really talking me into uh, self-massage with oil because you have beautiful skin. So if I could get that, <laughs> I know I have to say that because they can't, no one can see you. So I have to know like right. you're a good, you're right. like a walking advertisement for it. Um, uh-huh. And then um Oh, I also want to note that on your site, Naughty Girl Arveda, there's a wonderful um, just like outline of a day, which I found actually pretty, really reasonable. Like couldn't do it every day, but like could definitely hit some of the marks on there for sure. So just so people know, definitely go to your site and it'll all be in the show notes, but it's wonderful. Um, And then the other thing I found really interesting on your site was how it talked about there's your dosha and then there's like this, what season you're in. And how in Ayurveda, it's more, it, usually it's more important to follow the season you're in. Is that, am I understanding that right? Than your personal dosha or does it depend? <laughs> <laughs> right. It depends. But basically there's what's called prakruti and that's your birth pulse or your birth dosha. So a dosha is a constitution and to just back up a tiny bit for the like really nutshell of the Ayurveda 101, right? As Ayurveda says, the whole universe is made up of five great elements, which are ether, air, fire, water, and earth. And we are these sort of micro individuals in this macro experience. So the whole world has these five elements and we have the five elements within. And really the definition of health in Ayurveda is balance. So how can we balance our internal elements, our internal ecology with our external ecology, right? And with that idea, Ayurveda says that when we're born, we have what's called a prakruti or a natural state. It's the amount of elements within our body that doesn't change in our life. And we refer to those five elements within three doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha, right? Vata is air and ether element, pitta is fire and water, and kapha is water and earth element. And so they say when you're born, you have it's sort of your unique genetic blueprint of being predominant vata or secondary pitta, right? I'm pitta primary, vata secondary. And that doesn't change throughout your life. Similarly to the way that your astrological sun sign isn't going to change in your life, right? It's a fixed set of characteristics that exist when you're born. And they're more predominant when you're out of balance. And that's the thing that's a little bit confusing. I think for people who don't know about Ayurveda, they're like, well, I am this thing, but is that good or is that bad? And Ayurveda is a little bit of a negative theory, right? So if you can think of balance, you can't see me on the thing, but if you think of a straight line, this is audio, not video, but if you think of a straight line, imagine that balance. And then something happens to throw you off. And so you have arrows that either go up or that go down. And then you're in a place of an elevated or a depressed dosha. And you want to use opposites. So if you're very cold in body temperature, you want to drink ginger tea, for example, to warm up. That would put you back to this level of balance. And so your birth dosha is very helpful to know kind of the way that you tend to go out of balance. And it's very pronounced closer to our birth. So in children, you can almost always tell what the doshas are because they really align with those fixed characteristics that are related to the elements, right? And so that's kind of, that's an, it's important to know because it's kind of our homeostasis. It's what our tendencies are. Then there's your vikruti, which is your current pulse. And that's what's going on right now. And it tends to, yes, be influenced by season. But when we say season, 
or time, what's called kala, we're talking about the environmental season around us, but we're also talking about the season within our lives. So we have different phases of life, you know, adolescence, childhood being this very kapha, wet building time. And then from adolescence through in women, basically to menopause is this pitta time where it's like doing career, family, that kind of drive. And then from menopause on is the vata time where we go back to this sort of a lighter, ideally more inspired wisdom state that's more related to the lightness of vata, right? So thinking about the season of our lives we're in, thinking about the season of the environment around us, also thinking about the season within the time of the day that we're in, because the doshas relate to different times of the day, which is why when you saw that sort of Ayurvedic day, it's laid out to be like, okay, these are the elements that tend to be predominant. This is the energy that pretends to be dominant during this time or not dominant. And if we can kind of get our little micro rhythms, our micro clock along with this macro clock, the whole, all of the gears can turn a little bit better. So Mm -hmm. that's a very long answer to say, if you're in an, if you're having an acute health situation or an acute situation, then your Vikruti, what's happening right now is the most important thing to address. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you come in with a sinus infection, that's the thing that I want to work with right now versus what your natural state is, what your prakruti is. But that is a helpful baseline. So ideally, you have knowledge of both. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, This is sort of a silly question, but it's something I've always noticed in myself. I've never talked to an Ayurvedic, spoken to an Ayurvedic practitioner about myself, but I feel like I tend to have like some pitta uh, energy. And sometimes when I can tell I'm really imbalanced in pitta, I kind of like it. Is that (laughs) weird? Like, I'll feel like kind of like, like, I know I'm like being too fiery. And I know I'm like, you know, do it like, I I can feel this sense, but like the energy behind it, I sort of like, and then of course, like I end up eventually burning out. But is that is that a sign sometimes like because you're comfortable in your imbalance or something? Yeah, I mean, there's this idea, absolutely, this idea that like increases like. So mm. the more that we're a certain way, the more we're drawn to that certain way. Mm. And then the, there's six stages of disease in Ayurveda. So at the beginning, when it's just like a little pitta irritation, then you might still be drawn to things that are balanced. But as you sort of go along and you get more pitta in the system, whether that's inflammation or just that sort of like drive, then we're gravitated more to the like, right? And as I said, we use opposites for balance in Ayurveda. And one of the main uh, reasons for disease in Ayurveda is something called prajna parada. I might have said that wrong, which is basically um, errors in wisdom. It's doing the thing you know you shouldn't do, right? And so it's like you have that like, oh, but I just want to like go out one more night this week, even though I feel run down, and then you end up getting sick. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think there is this human tendency, especially the more out of balance we are, the more we're drawn to that. Like the flip side, the good news is the more imbalanced we are, the more we sort of regulate our yoga practices, our eating practices, our lifestyle, whatever it is, the more we're drawn to that. Because we also just like we crave imbalance, we also crave balance. Mm, and as you find balance, you become more balanced. Right. Yeah. And I think it's an easier thing to touch into. Like we all fall off the horse all the time, but at least we know there's a horse. Like (laughs) as you do it, it's easier to get back. You know, like Krishna Matario says there's attention and there's distraction. There's only two states, attention and distraction. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think once we become, we become aware of that or we take in that idea, it's not that we're not distracted. It's just that it's a little bit like the road to come back to attention. is just a little bit shorter. And that's where all of these tools of self-care and yoga and Ayurveda, I feel like are so beneficial. It's not to prevent the challenges of life. As I like to say, it's not so the shit doesn't hit the fan. I don't know if you have to ask. No, it's fine. You can say whatever you want. I edit out the curse words. My mom calls me the cursing yogi. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's not, I don't think we do these practices to keep the shit from hitting the fan. We are going to go out of balance. Stuff is going to happen around us that we can't control. But it's like, how do we handle it with as much grace as possible? 
Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, right. That, that makes so much sense. I, I, I keep coming back to, I, you said this really early in our, in our chat, but I keep coming back to that idea of uh, longevity being one of the, being really the philosophy of Ayurveda. And I really loved what you said somewhere on your site. You, you talked about how like sometimes being the fittest person isn't, uh, isn't the most important, you said it much more eloquently, but like sometimes being, being the fittest you can be, isn't the most important thing, right? It's not like the, it's not, that's not always the key to longevity. If your philosophy is longevity versus being the fittest person, uh, it, it changes the way you think of things. And I really like that because I think I can get sort of personally get trapped in this idea I, maybe it's an American idea of like trying to like run as far as I can and trying to like, you know, really push myself in, in fitness and in wellness. And um, I guess I'm just curious, like, how has that philosophy kind of changed the way you think about the things you do? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one thing that also comes to mind in terms of pitta and in terms of this like doing as though doing is more. The thing is that of the three doshas, pitta lends itself the best to capitalism, Mm. right? And so we have this sort of societal drive that we should do more, that we should achieve more, that we should get letters by our names, that we should run farther, faster, higher is better. You know, mm-hmm. and so I think we're really like, in terms of the Vata Pitta Kapha of society, I think that we're very out of balance Vata, air and ether, lots of movement, ideas, people feeling anxious, scattered, dry. The internet is like this Vata thing, like you open a screen, you open a screen, you can't quite finish or focus on anything, right? And this also this sort of lack of commitment, like you can order anything you want and return anything you want. And so that's very sort of vata of like where the mental spaces and the society, I think also since COVID, the amount of fear and anxiety, which is very vata, has gone through the roof, right? But we celebrate pitta. Mm-hmm. Oh, the more you do, the more you achieve, the faster you run, the more, more, more is better because that lends itself to this capitalistic model, right? Mm-hmm. And then we give poor kapas a hard time, like, to be slower. Nobody wants to be slower or bigger. But actually, that's really the most balanced in a lot of ways. And people with people, Kafa people tend to live the longest, have the highest fertility, because they have the most water and earth element, which is like this juicy, juicy stability that doesn't burn out the way that our sort of our pitta energy does. So I feel like it's, it's a little bit of pittas, but there's a game of sort of the external world being so pitta and being so fiery and us sort of wanting that and drawing into that. I mean, I know for myself as an athlete, you know, I got into yoga actually from competitive running, from doing track when I was in high school um, and being a swimmer and an aerialist and a surfer and all of these things. I have a very active like lifestyle. So actually my yoga asana practice, if you saw my home practice, be like, uh, supta Bhattakanasana, like restorative, and maybe some Padanusasana with the strap and some child pose. I'm not, definitely not doing a bunch of vinyasas and arm balances in my own home practice because I have such an active lifestyle. And so I think it really is a balance of like knowing that, yes, for longevity, surfing four hours a day in the sun, it's not, it's not for longevity. Right. Like that's not necessarily like the biggest balance for longevity. And so I take that and I and I acknowledge that and I try to find the dance of like how much can I rest and how much can I do the things that I love to do? Because I do think that, you know, mental health is important. Endorphins are important. And like the benefits that we experience when we really love a physical activity is very different than like forcing yourself. Oh, I got to go on this run at five in the morning so that I burn enough calories, so that I did, it's like, try not to turn passions into chores. Mm. So I try not to turn my passions into chores. But yes, be aware that like, I do have that pizza tendency to love to to exercise (laughs) excessively. And another piece I would say with that is, you know, time of day and season. Like I live in a very hot climate and you don't want to exercise during the day. Like the morning, that kapha, six to 10 in the morning is the time to exercise. 
right? And anyone who lives in a really warm climate knows that during the hot part of the day, you, you can't exercise like that, right? And doing vigorous exercise late in the evening, people a lot of times get more vata, get insomnia, can't sleep, da-da-da. So also like, you know, working within, within the framework of Ayurveda as the background and understanding season and time of day, I find to be very helpful. Gosh, I really love what you said, uh, like all of it, but especially like linking capitalism and pitta. I've never heard that is brilliant. And I I really think it is so true. And it just really brings me back. I won't mention their name, but I worked at a studio and the owner of it was very, it almost felt like uh, they used Ayurveda to body shame in a way, like would say like, oh, you know, like, um, themselves they were very thin and very vata and it was very yeah it was like um praising to say like oh you're being vata but if you were kapha or like oh that class was kapha it would be like an insult uh Mm. from them which i i feel like actually kind of like this is i'm just kind of figuring this out right now but i think it kind of turned me off to ayurveda which is so sad because the way you explain it it's so great. (laughs) I wish I uh, had talked to you about it instead to start, but I'm really glad we're talking now because it, yeah, I mean, everything you're saying makes so much sense, but the piece about capitalism being picked up, wow, mind blown, honestly, (laughs) that is so true. And it is Mm -hmm. true, like in the turning passions into, or hobbies into chores is so true. Like even in our culture, like any, you know, if you like making jam, you have to all of a sudden sell that jam, you know, like you can't just, (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. you like making pesto for your friends, but all of a sudden you're supposed to have a pesto company, you know, (laughs) it's like so cool. That's the commodity. That's the commodification of leisure time. Leisure time. No. Yeah. And that's like one of, that is one of the main cogs of, of capital, of capitalism is like commodifying our time. And then of course, commodity fetishism, which is Marx's big theory of like the inherent value of things that don't have an inherent value. It's not mm-hmm. the thing that is valuable. It's like, we've lost the relationship of labor time of the human connection mm-hmm. in the thing. Right. And I feel like Pitta keeps those sort of blinders on where it's like, go, 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 go create. And we lose some of those human connections, which are much, which are much stronger amongst Kafa. Right. And so I'm sorry to hear about that yoga teacher. It sounds like they had, you know, and, but I think that that also brings up another good point is like, we do very much celebrate this Vata body type, right? Mm-hmm. Thin, tall, light, dry, rough, mobile. So the supermodel look is very Vata, is emaciating, right? Vata is like evaporating, losing, breaking down. We need those, those, those processes that are breaking down, right? And then we have our our kapha is like building, right? We need building processes. We need breaking down processes. And then we need that sort of like um, sort of metabolic function of, of pitta in the middle. Um, and so I think that we really, yeah, we live in a society, society that wants to celebrate that thin, vata, wafy like body. And Two things I would say about that is from an Ayurvedic perspective, that is the least healthy body. Mm. That is the least healthy body. And in the, in the kinds of diseases, in classic Ayurveda, there's like 100 diseases. And 70 of them are from vata imbalances, from too much dry, light, movement, munchy, crunchy, body, mind, energy. 20% of them are from pitta. That's more of your inflammatory stuff, your itises, if you will. Only 10% of diseases are from kapha imbalances Hmm. right and so i think that we have this idea that you know vata is is so healthy when it's actually not and the second point that i think is important is if you think through history and you think of images of the goddess right in all cultures and panchamama and all of the hindu and buddhist goddesses they're not skinny they're not (laughs) wapies as supermodels Uh uh-uh they are big voluptuous kapha-like creatures big chest, big hips, big lips, big hair, strong, confident, right? Kapha, that's the nurturer. That's the mother. That's the caretaker. That is That archetype is very much Kapha. And so I think it's just this small sort of switch in 
in the modern mind that would cause someone to feel like that. And I think that that is also, again, a result of the fitness industry and capitalism and this idea that thinner is better, which from an Ayurvedic standpoint is not true. Balance is better. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a hundred percent. Yeah. It's, that is so, it's so nice to hear. Like, it's just so nice to hear that. Um, I, sorry, I'm like still absorbing it. <laughs> um, I, I, it was interesting also to hear you say that they're all combos. Cause I've always heard that Vata was air and that, um, uh, Pitta was fire and that Kapha was earth, but actually they're all kind of combinations, right? Is that correct? So, um, because I've always wondered where water was in there, <laughs> but water is actually included. So it's Kapha is water and earth. Is that what you said? And then mm -hmm. which one with fire is, what's fire? Ether and... <laughs> So Vata is air and ether. Air and ether. And Pitta is fire and water. Uh, and Kapha is water and earth. And so uh, water is the only dosha that appears, excuse me, the only element that appears in two doshas, in both Pitta and both Kapha. And I personally, this is not classic Ayurveda. This is inside of my brain. So don't, don't ask for... Um, uh, a citation on this one, but I always kind of think about it and frame this to students as like, I feel like half of the water ended up in pizza and half of the water ended up in kapha, which I think is why the idea we think of pizza as fire. I think fire is also the easiest element of the five elements. It's the easiest to think of. Someone's mm -hmm. fiery. If you say someone's fiery, people have a concept of that and that's pizza. But if you say someone's watery, Mm -hmm. It's a little more like, what, what is that? You know, or even ether. What is that? What is that sort of a spherical quality, right? And so that water, you know, water and earth, when they're out of balance, make mud. And that's the negative aspect of pitta, right? And mm -hmm. fire and water in that sort of negative aspect make that sort of inflammation or, or steam. But you need fire and water because pitta is all about the digestion, assimilation, breakdown, absorption of food, thoughts, and ideas. And so you need water, not just fire, to break things down. Mm -hmm. For example, hydrochloric acid in the stomach, one of the first things that help break down our food once they get to the stomach hydrochloric acid, right? So you know hydro, there's your water, and you know acid is fire, right? It's got that acidic. So you need, so it's, you need fire and water to be able to break down food. You need water in the lymphatic system along with the stability of your bones with kapha, right? And then vata, that air and ether element, which is all about, you know, movement, change, breaking things down and then ether is really i mean the classical idea from samkhya philosophy where most of this where this elemental theory came from is samkhya philosophy which is the basis of um yoga and ayurveda so much of yoga and ayurveda come from the samkhya philosophy where you see purusha and prakriti or shiva and shakti depending on the tradition and sort of consciousness and matter and everything sort of distills down in you you get into these to these elements and the first one is ether and they say sound needed a way to travel and that's ether mm -hmm. right and so i think a lot of times this is another thing i think is interesting about vata is sometimes there's people with vata imbalances that don't seem windy hyper airy like we think about that sort of anxious hyper manic vata whirlwind energy Right. There's the ether side of vata, which is a lot more clear, a lot more light, out of balance. It's actually spaced out. Mm. Sometimes people appear can appear a little bit like vata, or excuse me, kapha, who actually have that vata ether. Ideally, meditation to me is the element of ether and earth. It's grounded. It's in body, but it's also in this in the ethers, which is this spiritual connection. So ethereal people tend to be like have this much more sort of spiritual, intuitive connection to things that are in the ethers, things that aren't necessarily grounded in earth. Mm. Right. So for example, you could see like, 
ADD, for example, attention deficit disorder, right, often has this is a very undiagnosed in girls in particular. And ADHD, which has the hyper, is very is much more diagnosed and it's much more diagnosed in boys because they're hyper. If you notice it, it's got that pitta and air vata going mm-hmm. on, right? ADD and ADHD definitely have to do with lack of routine and lifestyle, like vata aggravating lifestyle for children. But ADD is very common in girls that are undiagnosed. So the quiet girl in the back of the room or female identified at that point, child at the back of the room who isn't disturbing anyone, doesn't have that hyperactivity, might also have ADD, but has that sort of quiet, etherical connection. Yeah. And I feel like I you notice that a lot in artists where you can just sometimes talk to them and they are, and they're brilliant, you know, they'll make brilliant art, but sometimes you'll, you'll talk to them and be like, oh, you are, (laughs) you know, they even sometimes look up, you know, I've I've definitely noticed that before. (laughs) Like, oh, okay. You're listening to someone else up in the sky (laughs) right now. That's one of the genius of Vata. Absolutely. Is, Mm -hmm. is especially the ether part of the ether element, because literally what is making art is you're taking something from the ether, from the unknown, from the Mm. unreal, and you're distilling and manifesting it and putting it in a physical form, right? You're putting a theoretical energy into a physical form to make art. And that's why art is so powerful. Well, that, and I think it's the only thing that's going to save us at at this point in society, but that might be for another part. Oh yeah, I mean no, but absolutely that that wow yeah that makes so much sense. It's so it, I love your enthusiasm for each different uh, dosha. The, the, just that you have this like great. It's clear that you did find your thing. Is all I'll say. Like obviously, because <laughs> you have this real. You can get excited about any person, any type. You're like no, no, they're great. No, they're great. Just <laughs> I don't know. It's so good. I don't know. It's just so good to hear um, because, yeah, I guess one of the things about Ayurveda being like kind of what you called like a negative philosophy is sometimes it can be explained in a way that's sort of negative. But I feel like your perspective is so positive because it's like these are this is what you can do with what you've got, basically, it, it, you know, if that makes any sense at all. Um, <laughs> um let me, I had, sorry, I'm just going to check my notes real quick. Um, oh, yeah. Speaking of ether, I noticed that you, and I've noticed in your classes, I noticed on your website and just talking to you, you have a real um, commitment to pranayama. Um, and I, this is, I really go in and out with pranayama. I fall off the horse, I get back on. I fall off the horse, I get back on. Um, but I was curious, is there a certain pranayama practice you do every day or do you switch it up depending on the season or how you're feeling? Yeah. I, I have came up with a new tagline this week, which is come for the asana, stay for the pranayama. <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's how I feel about yoga. I really feel like, so much of the benefits, and this is that etherical unseen, it's not the physical fire earth elements of like, I can do handstand, I can do warrior two, I can da 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 with the asana, you know, but it's like these unseen benefits of pranayama are deep, deep, deep. Krishnamacharya Deskachar, his son, calls it, the, you know, pranayama is the heart of yoga. And I really think that that's true. Um, in my personal practice, I like to do Vishmavriti um, and, or Samavriti and often Vishmavriti, which are even or uneven length breaths where you count the breath, um, which is something that is from that Krishnamacharya Deskachar tradition. Um, and it's very simple. And that's what I teach in my class is because it's like, I don't know how many things you'll think of in one breath, but I will think of so many damn things in one breath. And if I'm literally like inhale for one, two, three, four, five, there's less time to think about anything when you're keeping that count. So I tend to do those even breaths. And I actually just read a fairly interesting book called Breath. Um, and we can put that in the in the bylines. But um, he talks about the perfect ratio of breath. This guy does all this sort of 
new science and ancient technology research, and they found that like 5.5 seconds of breath is the perfect inhale and exhale ratio, which I just read this book and I was like, well, that's affirming since I've been doing my five count inhale, five count exhale pranayama in my home practice and teaching it to people for 15 years. So I'm glad that, you know, like white guy who wrote breath book is affirming <laughs> things that, you know, yogis have been saying for thousands of years, which I do think is important. I do, I do love the Western science that is like um, corroborating all of the things that yoga has been saying. I also like to practice some kriyas in the morning, sometimes Bastrika and Kapalabhati and Nadi Shodana Kriya, the alternate nostril breathing, which is in a lot of texts, at least in sort of a Hatha Yoga, Hatha Yoga Pradipika and that sort of tradition is kind of considered one of the highest pranayamas. And so practicing, practicing that as well. But I also just find in, in my daily life, breathing and that's one of the main things I notice with clients is most of us really shallow breathe right and we're not even getting belly breaths and so just in my day-to-day I try to like kind of constantly be in a way of getting the breath into the belly making sure I'm not doing reverse breathing like pranayama for life and that's the beautiful thing about both pranayama and mantra because traditionally mantra chants are done not traditionally, but one of the highest forms is silent recitation. And that's the cool thing. You can be on the bus, you can be at the doctor's office, you can have a baby on your breath and you can be doing your pranayama and you can be doing your mantra. And so there's a way that I also like to infuse that practice, that sort of breath awareness practice into my daily life. Yeah, the the bell, I feel like actually belly breathing is another thing that's been influenced for me by culture because I feel like it, I was always holding my belly in until I got pregnant. And then all of a sudden, because you can let your belly out when you're pregnant, (laughs) I was breathing so much better, even though there's a baby in there. So it's been a real journey for me postpartum to like really keep breathing into my belly. Um, And it's, it does, it really changes the way that I think I feel like it does feel like you get, I don't know. um, For me, meditation is always a struggle, but pranayama, I can, I can always talk myself into pranayama, (laughs) if that makes sense. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, it's also, you know, for the pizzas, it's like we're doing something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It keeps your mind busy. (laughs) Exactly. And that's the same thing with saying when I'm counting the breath, I'm like, okay, I'm doing something. I can keep that focus. And one of the the translations of the word pizza itself is in Sanskrit is actually focus. Mm. Lots of change, pizza focus, kapha nourish. Right, And if we can change, focus, and nourish throughout our lives, then we're in the best balance. That is that knowledge of longevity. Yeah. Well, I uh, feel like I could talk to you forever, but uh, I don't want to keep you. And so you'll have to come back. Um, (laughs) uh, But I know that people are going to be really interested in learning from you. And um, I will definitely put your site in the show notes. Uh, But how how can we get in contact with you? Your website, um, Naughty Girl Ayurveda. And then what else? Is there any other way? Instagram, I assume? Yeah, I have Naughty Girl Ayurveda um, website. Instagram is also Naughty Girl Ayurveda. Facebook, I think, is a thing of the past. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Agreed. Um, I offer weekly online, um, three times a week, online Zoom yoga classes, vinyasa classes, um, which you can sign up through on my website. They're all donation-based. Pay what you can. I also have a monthly subscription that people are on, so they get the like video library as well. Um, I offer a full moon lunar sadhana. Every full moon, we do a restorative practice to help kind of for our pittas, bring everything down, balance, nourish with that full moon, build what's called ojas, our vital immunity. Um, and then I offer various other, like I'm doing a spring cleanse right now, online workshops. I live right now in coastal Oaxaca and Puerto Escondido. So if anyone's down here, which surprisingly people come down here. Uh, I bet. I have my, I have my uh, in-person Ayurvedic consult, massage, some live yoga classes. And then I also do Ayurvedic consult online as well. So we do, we do an intake form and we do sort of looking at your birth pulse, looking at your current pulse, looking at what's going on. 
so those are kind of the main ways to find me. And then, uh, yeah, I'm so happy you spent some time with the website. Um, there is a lot of information. I'm really a true believer because I'm not a great capitalist. I'm a true believer in, you know, giving, gifting the information and then sort of like, you know, content marketing, I think is what the kids call it these days, but really like giving as much information. So there's a ton of free information available on the website to check out. And there's a lot of stuff based on each element. And I have to just give a shout out to Helene Cotton, who's my website guru, graphic design goddess. She's just amazing. So the reason that the presentation is so incredible is her genius has nothing to do with, um, with me, (laughs) that part. So yeah, that's how you can, that's how you can find me. Yeah. And, um, I was reading about the moon sadnas and they look really wonderful so i'm happy to learn about them i just missed the last one but um i love that you said um all of this like everyone wanting to get things done in 2021 makes me need a nap (laughs) agreed yeah i saw a bumper sticker once that you know it said there's a nap for that yeah thank god because i don't want what i don't want another app i want a nap for that and yeah i think that's I think that's the medicine and that's really, you know, something that I'm learning as like that we need to rest, that we need to restore and that we deserve to rest and that we deserve to restore. And if we are rejecting some of this sort of capitalist, patriarchal, colonial nonsense, it's actually not doing more. It's actually not taking on more. Mm-hmm. It's not actually being the biggest, fastest da, 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 at anything. And so I think that there is really at the core of this self-care, that it's not selfish, that self-care is this radical act, right? It is radical that we are taking time for ourselves and therefore can take better quality time for each other. That's not just staring at screens. So I think that it's, it's a gift and it's also a sacred duty and, and responsibility, to anyone who has access to these tools to absolutely use it and use it as a form of, you know, to use self-care as a form of activism. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you've developed to love ourselves. That, that, that's not what they want. They want us to be so insecure that we buy more shit. <laughs> yep. And that, and that work that we can do on the mat and in our self-care practices is really a way to take a pause, to say no, to, re, to rework our way of relating to ourselves and each other. And so I just personally feel so grateful to have gotten the opportunity to have learned these tools, have had the privilege to have access to these tools in my lifetime so that I can use them to benefit my own life and share them, even if it means my friends are going to eat my pesto very quickly every single day. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's clear that your life is devoted to not, not your self-care, not only your self-care, but the self-care of others. So thank you so much. And thank you for being so generous with sharing so much about Ayurveda and all of your wisdom. Such a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much for finding me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kamiko Shibata. And like I said, you should really go to her website, Naughty Girl Ayurveda, and that's Naughty spelled N-A-D-I, like the naughties of the body. Uh, and everything we talked about will be in the show notes. So you can also find it there. Uh, yeah, but I'll let you know how the consultation goes. And I, there's so much other stuff on there. Like she said, the um, moon, the new moon uh, and full moon, sadhanas the her weekly classes as well as information about ayurveda and her uh and the ability to get an ayurveda consult which i am doing so anyway i'll let you know how that goes when we talk in two weeks uh so today we're on the second niyama which is santosha santosha Uh, which means contentment. And I love this one. Uh, I think for a few reasons. One is, uh, I just feel like when you meet someone who has contentment, it is such a pleasure. Like uh, people who just feel content, there's like this sense of like calm and groundedness from them that you don't get from everyone. And I don't know, it just feels so nice. Like it's just such a good, it does feel like it's a contentment is something that is 
for you to find peace, like you personally, like looking to find contentment is something for the person themselves. But I also feel like it's like a treat for everyone around you when you really embody contentment, Santosha. Um, And, you know, part of contentment to me is like this, that like ability to fully be in the moment and accept kind of accept the moment for what it is without trying to sort of push it away with you know extra language you know extra talking or or you know whatever it is you do to kind of get out of the moment it's this kind of acceptance of whatever's going on which is very yogic to me and uh, something I really try to do um and I Santosha also is just this I just think it's revolutionary in a capitalist society like this um, because capitalism, the way that capitalism keeps, you know, feeding itself is to keep telling people that not only do they not have enough, but they're not enough and they're not doing enough. And Santosha is like this, you know, like to strive for Santosha, Santosha is almost, it's almost like a misnomer, but it's not like the, the, to try to embody Santosha is to, push away all those ideas of capitalism that you're not enough or that you're not doing enough or that the people around you aren't good enough, right? It's the like this just acceptance of who you are and where you are and really that whatever it is, you're enough. Uh, which I feel like is so important, especially with all the like the stuff in social media of like these coaches. And I know a lot of them are really well-meaning, these like life coaches who are I don't know, to me, a lot of their messaging seems like, you know, whatever it is we do, like work full time or not, or take care of our kids full time or not, or whatever, especially women, like it's not enough. And I, I don't know, I just love it that one of the sutras is like an acceptance of enoughness that like, right now, this moment, who you are is enough. And not, not only is it, are the teachers telling you that, but that, that they're saying like, this is something, this is important thing for you to pursue is contentment. And of course it doesn't mean like, oh, I'll just, we know whatever's going on in the world, even if it's like, if I find it to be like morally reprehensible, it's okay. Right. I, I actually think when you're coming from a place of contentment, you can see more clearly and you, because you can see more clearly and you're more awake, you can make better changes. Um, yeah. It's just, yeah, I, I, there's a story in Satchidananda's translation of the Yoga Sutras where he says, like, you know, there was this woman and they came to her and they were like, oh, you won the lottery. So she ran through the city screaming with joy. And then they came back to her like 20 minutes later and they were like, sorry, we made a mistake. You didn't win the lottery. So she, you know, ran through the streets screaming with joy. And that, <laughs> and that, you know, like that's the true key to like being a yogi is like to have that joy either way um i'm not there yet but like how amazing would it be to be there (laughs) okay uh so i hope that you are feeling some santosha this week and i hope that you are enjoying your practice and know that you can always email me rebecca at homebodiesyoga.com please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast it really helps and have a lovely practice See you soon. Bye.